Colossians 3 and verse 16 is our study this morning. Colossians 3 and verse 16, Paul has been talking all about Christ, his glories, his, his beautiful sufficiency, and now he says something about the word of Christ, or the truth concerning Christ, or the word that Christ himself teaches us. And he says we have some certain responsibilities toward that word and how we ought to relate to it. We remember perhaps even at Christmas time, John chapter 1, that says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There is that certainty that Christ's revelation or that God's revelation through Christ is made perfect in the person and work of Christ. Whereas, and we could read in Hebrews chapter 1, it's interesting how John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1 all talk about the glory of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, the, the deity of Christ, and so forth. But Hebrews 1 would teach us that God has spoken I mean, really, if you were to hold your Bible open, let me just do that for sake of, of uh, illustration. If you were to open your Bible, well, don't forget Malachi. There we go. Let's turn it this way. If you were to open your Bible and consider the fact that all of this is Old Testament prophets that went before the time of Jesus. And then we have the New Testament, comparatively. A little bit smaller, and yet profound and needful. We need the Old Testament, we need the New Testament, we need all of Scripture. But we see Hebrews chapter 1 says, God spoke in many portions in many ways through the prophets to the fathers, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. Wow! Much better. I mean, we thank, thank God for the prophets. But even Peter said, we have the testimony made more sure, the prophetic word made more sure by the appearing of our Lord Christ. And so when we focus on the word of Christ, when we focus on the revelation that comes through Christ, we realize, period, that's, that's God in perfection being manifested to us. That is the going on in, in John 1. Uh, no one has seen God in time, but we have seen, at least through John and the other apostles, having seen and touched and handled, First John 1 also teaches that, concerning the word of life, Christ himself. And now we can see God, we can see the beauty, the character, the compassion, the, the righteousness, the justice, the wisdom of God made real through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we come to this scripture in, in Colossians 3 and verse 16. We think of those things. We remind ourselves, wow, God has revealed himself to us. We couldn't just figure things out. We couldn't just, uh, through our discovery, through our rational processes, uh, figure out who this God of the Bible is. Don't you remember even in Acts chapter 17, when Paul is in, in Athens, they worship this God and that God and this God of their own making. They designed gods after different uh, aspects of life, you know, uh, warfare and love and all these things. But then they had this altar to the unknown God. And Paul said, you know, you're, you're good. I see you're religious in every respect, but let me tell you about this unknown God whom you worship. He is real. He is there. He's not silent. He has revealed himself. And he's spoken through this Christ whom he raised from the dead. Which they said, well, what's this raising from the dead business? Well, read the rest of the story in Acts 17 as Paul uh, speaks to the Athenian philosophers. Here we have in, in Colossians 3 the implications of what does it mean for Christians now being in Christ? What does it mean for us to live? How do we, ought we to live? How ought our lives be entirely 180 degrees opposite from where we were before. How does that look? I won't go into the, all the details about that, what it used to look like, but here's what we should be like. Reading from Colossians 3 and verse 12 through verse 17, I believe. So, uh, so as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other, 
Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. Above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That is our uh, scripture study as we've looked at beginning at verse 12 and now, of course, in uh, verse uh, 16 that we have this command to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We've talked about the word of Christ or Christ himself, and it says this is the word of Christ, not other words. You remember back in chapter 2, uh, Paul made the um, startling command, see to it or watch out that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. So contrary to that, we have the word of Christ, the, the sufficient word, the authoritative revelation of God Most High who's been there. These other philosophers, these other uh, deceivers, you know, willfully deceiving other people, they're just, they're Johnny-come-latelys, whereas God himself has been around forever. There's no beginning and no end with God. So let's listen to him. Let that word, this word that we ought to uh, affirm and pay attention to, this word has been spoken of in throughout Colossians. Remember back in chapter 1 and verse uh, 5, he talked about having previously heard the word of truth. And he says that's synonymous with the gospel. The gospel is the truth, or the word of truth. The word of truth is the gospel. Now there's more than just the gospel, which is to say more than just as 1 Corinthians 15 would define the gospel. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared... And goes on and lists all those different folks that he appeared, confirming his resurrection, witnesses to his resurrection. The gospel is that. It's also repent, believe the gospel, turn from your sins, turn back to God. The gospel is even larger than that. Why should we turn? What should we, what should we turn from? Your sin. So we talk about, well, where'd sin come from? I think I'm a good person. I really think I am. Well, you hold up a stick and look straight until you hold up a ruler against it. Or you, uh, the room looks clean until you turn the light on, and, and then you examine the corners, and it's filthy. It's, it's just all this junk and debris in there. When we measure ourselves according to the word of God, then we realize, whoa, I'm in deep trouble. I am a sinful man. Isaiah, when he saw the Lord, woe is me, for I am a sinful man, for I'm a, I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and I'm a man of unclean lips. Good grief. So the gospel is this, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it, it totally consumes the whole scriptures from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the gospel, the work of Christ, and the glories that are that await those who trust in him. It is the word of truth. It is the word concerning Christ. It is the word that pertains to Christ, or it's about Christ. And so even you can consider what we read at the beginning, Isaiah seven fourteen, The virgin shall be with child and bear a son. She shall call his name Emmanuel. That's part of the gospel. That's looking forward to the fulfillment of that promise and setting the stage for God's great redemptive work in this world. We see a contrary word that says here, this is the word of Christ. But you know, there's a contrary word. It's the word that these false teachers were offering. Uh, Colossians 2 and verse 23 talks about this, these, these uh, false teachings of these false teachers in a false teaching kind of way. Their word of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body sounded so good because, you know, we'd really like to contribute to our salvation by neglecting this or forsaking that or you know being so harsh to our bodies 
And he says, it, it looks good. It has a, a word of wisdom. It has a, a certain characteristic, a, a je ne sais quoi, if you don't mind, about wisdom, but it's not. It is false. It is, it is foolishness. It, is, it turns away from Christ. No, give your attention to Christ. Give your attention to him. And he even says, and we'll see it again in, in chapter 4, that Paul says, pray that God would give us an open door for the word to speak the word, so that we may speak the mystery of Christ for which I have also been bound or imprisoned, that I may make it manifest in the way I ought to speak, Colossians 4, and verses 3 and 4. And then, of course, verse 6 says, Colossians 4, 6, let your words always be filled with grace. Always may your words be filled with grace. And that gets into what we'll, we'll see in this verse as well. Notice it says this is the word of Christ. This is not the word of men. It's not the word that you make up. It's not the newspaper articles. It's not the latest fashions. It's not the latest uh, TikTok or, or Instagram posting or whatever. It's the word of Christ. Okay, if Instagram and TikTok talk about Christ, fair, fine. But this is the word of Christ. Glorify him, especially at Christmas time. You know, you, you hear all this music and you hear, you, you hear about snow a lot. You hear about sleigh bells ring. And you, it's the most wonderful time of the year and so forth. Why? Because of Christ. It's not the snow. I mean, we don't have snow. Does that mean our Christmas is ruined? No. Christ is the reason for the season. There's a, there's a reason why that saying goes on. Sadly, people will say the reason for the season. Well, what is the reason for the season? I don't know. Gift giving, family time, and family. We celebrate family, but it's Christ that makes us part of one family, breaks down the middle wall of partition, lets us love in a real way, compassion, kindness, gentleness, humility, and all those wonderful things we've been studying. This is the word of Christ. This is Christ's work in our lives. So my point is, we need to make sure that we talk about Jesus. Isn't that kind of important at Christmas time to celebrate Christ, celebrate what he has done in our lives? We had some guests, and maybe you've had some guests in your home recently, or, or look forward to it, or, or maybe dread it, I don't know, but uh, you, there's this aspect of, of uh, hospitality or um, welcoming guests into your home that, that informs this, this command here. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, dwell in you richly. This is the idea not, or this is not the idea of, of a visiting, traveling guest, that they're, they've come, they've brought some baggage, and they're, and they're come, but they're, they're planning to leave. That, that's the expectation anyway. And they don't come and, you know, just, I mean, certain times we say, oh, you know, our house is your house, and, and uh, you know, make yourself a home kind of thing. Well, we don't expect them to start painting the walls and changing the carpet. We don't expect them to renovate, and, and I mean, they can talk to us and say, boy, that, that couch would look much better over there. But if they felt themselves really at home, they would take into their heart to move it and put it and arrange things just how they want it. And maybe even say, <laughs> as there's a, a movie that we like to see, uh, what's the best house? What's the best room in the house? And it was the master's house. That's mine. I'll take it. Wait a minute. What are you doing? You're a guest in my house. Don't. Don't do this. But to have the word of Christ dwelling in us richly, it has come to take up residence. It has come to inhabit, our, not as a guest, not as somebody who's just passing through and we expect him to leave soon. There's another favorite book that we have that, that says, uh, when did you say you were leaving? Which is kind of, anyway, uh, but this idea of dwelling in us, this is coming to not just to reside for a long time, but actually have controlling interest and authority. It's interesting when we have the change of presidencies, uh, presidents and the, the massive upheaval of, of one president's 
household stuff and the new president's household stuff. I don't think they use U-Haul or, or, you know, three men in a truck kind of thing. They may, I don't know. But just the massive moving around and reshaping it for that person. They are the permanent dwelling dwellers for at least four years, uh, and they have come to take up. And they and the first lady will decorate this and take control of the rose garden. All, the point is, dwelling is not a temporary thing. It is not a transitory thing. It is not something that is mild. This is something that takes authority, takes control over these these aspects. So many times we can see that word "dwell" refer to uh, the the inhabit inhabitants or the the habitation of an area. In fact, a lot of times in the Old Testament, it translates the word to sit or to to, to dwell, to um, to settle in, not just to, to visit or to, um, you know, like a hotel. You wouldn't go ahead and, and change things in a hotel. So many things are screwed down and, and you can't move it. But here it is it is a, a settling kind of a thing. So interesting. Remember Jacob, when he was coming back into the promised land and has all of his entourage, all of his family, all of his flocks and everything, he meets his brother Esau. And Jacob, always the deceiver, always the conniver, said, I'll meet you down at Mount Seir. Don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll have to go slow because of the children. And you do understand, Esau, my brother. Thank you. God bless you. So Esau goes down thinking his brother's going to come see him. Meanwhile, Jacob takes a right turn builds a house in Sukkot. Well, you you said you were going down to see your brother, and now you're building a house. And then the next verse almost says, and then he left that and went to, uh, where did he go? Shechem, I think, and dwelled in tents. You just look at, eat at Jacob and you wonder, what in the world are you thinking? Why do you need to be deceptive in so many different aspects of life? But there's that aspect, that issue of, Dwelling in a house versus dwelling in a tent and so forth. This is settling down, inhabiting, occupying it, and having a authority or control over it. Well, the point is here, how should we let this word of Christ dwell in us? And notice it says not just a little bit, not just you know, make sure he has access to all the best rooms in the house. No, make sure he has access to everything. All the locked cupboards, Christ has authority over those. Uh, the, the pantry, I mean, I have some special things. We have, what do we call that bucket that we have? Is that con- contraband? We have the contraband box, which you think, whoa, what's in there? That's the sugary stuff. That's the chocolate chips. That's the marshmallows. Christ can have access to that. Uh, what, a, what about my private stash of X, Y, and Z? Can he have access to that? Yes, he can have access to that. Whoa, I don't think he wants to have access to that. Well, then you shouldn't have it in your heart. You shouldn't have it in your house. Get it out of there. You want Christ to have full access to everything in your life, in your house. Do you have do you have aspects in of your um, what do they call it the finsta the finsta, the fake Instagram profile that you know I don't think Christ would like what's but I I, I like what's going on, but Christ wouldn't like that so um, should you have that if you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly is there anything of your life that is outside of His purview outside of His authority and control and his influence over those things. If we let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, so many times in Paul's letter, Colossians, he talks about the fullness or the the richness or the the sufficiency or the supremacy of this, that, and the other thing. Here he says, not just in a little way, but fully, richly, uh, abundantly, let the word of Christ live and dwell in in you, in you. In fact, it says in you, could be in you individually, each person, but also in you as a congregation. And so we celebrate 
I need to let the word of Christ dwell in me, but we also need to let the word of Christ dwell in our assembly. That's why we give so much attention to scripture reading and to uh, Bible study and even carefully selecting hymns that would reflect, and that gets into this verse as well, that would reflect the truth of God's word. There are five ways, I don't know if you want to write these down at all, but five ways in which we can and should let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. First of all, we read it. We need to read God's word. We want to do what the uh, what Moses uh, commanded. Um, Exodus 24 and verse 7, Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Well, didn't work out so well for them. At least their heart attitude, their commitment was was good. But Moses read that word to the people. Uh, Nehemiah, Ezra, well, in Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra was reading the word of God. They built a special platform uh, by the water gate in Jerusalem. And Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of all these people and read uh, before the square. He read it from early morning until midday. In the presence of all those, he read to, uh, and all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. So hearing it read to us, but also individually reading it. Uh, you remember in Acts 8, when the Ethiopian official, the eunuch, was going back to Ethiopia after having been in Jerusalem, he was reading in Isaiah 53. And the apostle or the evangelist, uh, Philip, came down and was speaking to him and helped him to understand that teaching that wasn't just about the, the prophet or about Israel, it was about Christ. And, and the evangelist was able to explain it. But he was reading God's word. You think, how did he get a copy of it? Remember, he was a government official. He had all kinds of money at his uh, at his disposal. Here in Colossians 4 and verse 16, we'll see that the people were supposed to have this letter, this letter to the Colossians read among you, and have it read in the church of the Laodiceans, which is a neighboring, uh, just a few miles down the, down the river from them. And he said, for your part, read my letter that's coming from Laodicea. So make sure you read God's word. Give attention to reading. First Timothy 4 verse 13 says, and even the blessing in Revelation 1 and verse 3 says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things which are written in it. The time is near. So reading God's word is the first way and letting that word get into our, into our minds. A second way to let God's word, word of Christ dwell in us richly is to believe it, to read it and then believe it. Okay, God has... How's that saying go? Uh, God said it, I believe it, or something like that. And so we believe that word. It is interesting to, to look back at Luke chapter 1. I don't know if you've read it recently as we come to Christmas time. The contrast of Zechariah, who did not believe, because you did not believe my words, you won't be able to speak. And even you'll be silent. The, the question is, was he able to talk, but was he able to hear then? Or was he totally deaf and mute for nine months. I almost think it's both. I think he was not able to hear. Remember how they made signs to him and he asked for stuff to write down? At any point, he did not believe God's word. Contrast this, this, that with Mary, who, I mean, Zechariah was in the temple worshiping God. Shouldn't you have an expectation that, that supernatural things are going to happen? Meanwhile, Mary, a young lady, get, grabbing water or something, whatever she's doing up in Nazareth in Galilee, an angel comes to her, says wonderful things to her, and she believes, and she obeys and says, here I am. Uh, the bondservant Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. So belief, faith uh, is important. 
Do you remember the parable Jesus told about the different kinds of soil and the word of God going upon, you know, the sower goes out to sow. And it says that some heard the word and they received it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a little while, but in the time of temptation, they fall away. There was another another soil that uh, having heard, uh, they are wor- they are choked rather by the worries and riches and pleasures of life, and they do not bear ripe fruit. But the seed of the good soil, this is Luke 8 and verse 15, the seed and the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word and an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. So faith, obedient, uh, uh, belief in God's word is so important. And recognizing it's not just the word of men. I don't come up here and tell you my, you know, the different things I've thought about in my in my reflection over the last week. I teach you the word of God. That's what anybody ought to do as we come to this pulpit or any pulpit. And even individually, we speak God's word. We can give opinions. You know, even Paul gave his opinion, right? In 1 Corinthians 7, you know, I'm saying this, not Jesus, but I. this is my opinion as one who's considered trustworthy and faithful to God. But I think this, uh, but we need to give priority and preference to God's word. Where is the chapter and verse that God says this? Let's turn to that. And then we can base other opinions and, and ideas and decisions uh, uh, down the line from that. But let's start with God's word. So reading God's word, believing God's word, meditating, meditating, ruminating over it, thinking about it, going back and forth in your mind. Uh, even uh, the, the, the idea in the Old Testament specifically of meditating is is even murmuring or, or whispering or talking, you know, making the, the vocalizing God's word. Uh, Joshua one eight is probably the the most principal word about a verse about meditating. Uh, God says, "This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way successful, and then you will be prosperous." So meditating on it, not just for fifteen minutes day and night, all the time, always having the word close to you, whether you memorize it, meditation and memorization go hand in hand, but if you just have it with you and you, you have a little pocket testament or on your phone, anybody not have a Bible app on their phone, good grief, get one. Uh, the Gideon Bible app is a good one. Uh, other, I mean, you can download the whole thing. You have it offline. You can listen to it. I think you have to be connected to the internet to listen to it, but you can read it in any translation almost. Any language you can, if you want to read Swahili, you can read it in Swahili or or Korean. Or, my point is, read the scripture, meditate upon it. If you don't have it memorized, then keep a copy with you. Have it in your car when you drive along. Uh, put it in your backpack. Carry it with you. Job, and this is Job's word. He says, "My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food." It would be interesting if, if as a group, we said, you know, we are going to take our meal time and we're just going to read the scripture. We like food and everything, but we're going to just read and be filled with the scripture. Well, there's a point for that. And then there's a time to eat. So eat, eat the good food. But do you value the word of God, the bread of life, more than your necessary food, as it says here, uh, more than my portion of food? And of course, Psalm 119, verse 11 says, your word have I treasured, not just yeah, I like it and stuff. Yeah, I read that, but I no, I treasure this. I value it. I let it richly dwell within me. I have treasured your word in my heart. Why? What's the implication? That I may not sin against you. Verse 15 says, I will muse. I will think about it. I'll repeat uh, your precepts and look upon your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. Verse 16, 
uh, says, I shall not forget your word. Well, how do you not forget? By repeating it, by going back. I mean, some things we will never forget, but it's almost like we have to battle to remember God's word and not forget it and, and, and be conformed not to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We've got to pay attention to this word. So read, believe, meditate, fourthly, speak God's word. And this gets into this idea back in the verse with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another. We teach, we speak God's word. We, we devote ourselves to these things. Opening uh, verse uh, chapter four uh, says, Paul was asking that God would open up doors for the opportunity for him to speak God's word. And he says, you guys too, a walk in wisdom toward outsiders, redeeming the time. Let your words always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should answer each person. We want to know how to do that. So it's so hard sometimes to be able to speak God's word into a specific moment or an issue. And it takes great skill. And we think, oh, well, I guess I shouldn't do it anymore then. I shouldn't. I should hesitate to lead people into the scriptures because I just don't know. I don't know the context. I, you know, oh, somebody, ah! No, uh, we need to speak God's word and let God bring the understanding and give, give uh, the opportunity for people to turn to him and look. We may not study the whole context, but you can turn and invite people to look at the scriptures and they can study for themselves. Uh, Proverbs 25 and verse 11 says, like apples of gold in settings of silver, which is kind of a beautiful setting. I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I have all that stuff, but apples of gold, beautiful, beautiful thing in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Sometimes we need to be silent. Sometimes we need to speak and sometimes we need to speak boldly and with admonition and correction and pleading with one another. Other times we need to back off and, and, you know, Actually, we get into this when we talk about admonishing, asking questions of one another rather than accusing one another. No, we need to know how to minister God's word very well. Other examples we could look at about um, speaking God's word, but we'll look at it as we look at admonishing and teaching. Fifthly, and finally, what should we do? How How do we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? By heeding, heeding God's word, which is a combination of hearing and doing, obeying, doing what God wants us to do. Deuteronomy 31, this is in the context of the Song of Moses, the final words of Moses before he died. He was commanded to assemble all the people, everybody of all ages, even the sojourner, even the visitor who's within your gates, so that they may hear and so they may learn and fear Yahweh your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. It's not enough just to hear, but we must do what God commands us to do. You remember, of course, in James chapter 1, he says, don't become those who just listen to the word and not do it. Verse 22 says, uh, become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he's looked at himself, has gone away. He immediately forgot what kind of person he was. What was this about? But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a, a doer of the work, this man will be blessed and what he does. So doing, heeding God's word is so important as we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. He gives us three words to describe how, what is that, what is the implication? What's the practical outpouring of that then? He says here, teaching and admonishing, teaching and admonishing. And then finally, at the end of the verse, he says, singing with gratefulness. You look for those ing words and those are, that helps us to understand, okay, we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. How do we 
how does that work itself out? Well, we teach, we admonish, we sing. And the, the combination of those things, notice they're all verbal. It'd be nice if we can just say, you know, I'm going to live as a Christian and hopefully people will you know, be saved because of my Christian witness or testimony. Well, your witness, your testimony has words to it. It's not enough just being a nice person. It's not enough just to be uh, kind of a joyful person. We ought to be joyful, not just being a loving person. We should be loving. But we've got to speak. We've got to testify to God's truth, the gospel, Christ, his work, our need of a savior, our need of, of repenting and believing in Christ. And so he says, teach and admonish and sing. Teach and admonish and sing. Notice it says here, with all wisdom. We need God's wisdom. We need God's perspective on things because we get distracted, we get confused, we get overwhelmed with the message of the world, which is not wise. It is foolishness. The foolishness of men is, or the wisdom of God is foolishness to men and vice versa. Vice versa. It is interesting that the most concentrated use of this word wisdom or Sophia is in the whole New Testament is here in Colossians. I mean, by far. Uh, Colossians is a short book, so there's not a whole lot of of I think there were six uses here in, in Colossians. But that is, you know, per number of total words in the letter, it is by far the most concentrated use of wisdom in any other letter. I think First Corinthians, uh, you can see in verses or chapters one and two, talking about wisdom and three, uh, talk about the wisdom and foolishness. But here in Colossians, Paul is talking about wisdom because that's one of the issues in the church, is false teaching that's going on. People saying, We have wisdom. We have special knowledge. We have uh, this, this, come in and we'll teach you this. But there are certain rites and, and procedures and rules and rituals you've got to abide by to be part of the in crowd. And Paul says it's a bunch of hogwash. Forget about it. Turn to Christ. Look to him. Let the word of Christ, not the word of your false teachers. They're making most of it up. They're making it up. They're using scripture and they're quoting this, but they're making it up to make themselves look good and to make it like the, to you that you have the answers you know all mysteries and can fathom all knowledge. What? No. They're, they're foolish. They're, no. They're making it up. You want true wisdom? Christ himself is that. In whom? Verse two, verse 3 of chapter 2. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures. Not like, well, we go to Christ for, these, for this aspect of life, but for other stuff we need to turn over here. In Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Does that mean that... that uh, you know, people say, well, is, this, is, this, is the Bible a science te textbook? Well, it has knowledge, because science means knowledge, right? The gathering of knowledge. But it also is to say that whatever the Bible speaks upon, whether it's botany or astronomy or hydrology or biology, it speaks truly. Now, can we learn other things? Yes, by observation, by exploration, and so forth. We can learn more about the eye. The scriptures talks about the eye quite a bit. But in terms of the mechanics of how does the eye work, well, we can study that and we can research it, but we first understand God made the eye because it's interesting how so many people will say, oh, the eye is so poorly designed. How could nobody in their right mind would have designed an eye this way? And it's like, excuse me, God made it that way. Are you saying that, that God made it poorly? What, what's your solution and how, how do you think it would ought to, how it ought to work? And the, the foolishness of men who, who would try to supplant God's creative design in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We want to make sure that we uh, uh, teach and admonish. Colossians 1 and verse 28 use these same words, teach and admonish with all wisdom. Now, just a portion. And here's a comforting thought. James chapter 1 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, then you're out of luck. 
Sorry, should have tried better. No, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and he will graciously give to you without, by the way, without upbraiding, which is the idea of, of finding fault with you or saying, you should have, you, that is the most foolish question I've ever heard. God doesn't do that. Now, sometimes he does. Romans 9 talks about a question you shouldn't ask, and you can read Romans 9. How should we ask this? But normally, those who have a heart for learning, a heart, a desire for wisdom, God will give wisdom. How do we learn wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Look to him, trust him. It says, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. I could dilate along on, on this teaching and admonishing. I'll just mention a few things, but then point back to our study in Colossians 1 and verse 28, where he says, him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man or every person, man, woman, boy, and girl, complete in Christ. We looked at that. What does it mean to teach? What does it mean to admonish? Quite a bit in that context. But I'll mention it uh, just uh, briefly here for our time this morning before we are done and go to our meal. And that is to say, I'll look at the end of this, this, what's on the screen here. One another. This is not something that just comes from the pulpit. It's not just com- something that comes from the most senior members of our church. It's one another. We have a mutual obligation and responsibility and opportunity to speak by teaching and admonishing one another. This is something that we can't just delegate to other people. Oh, they'll take care of that issue. Uh, it's kind of like if you see your neighbor's ox in a ditch, then you go and rescue that ditch. Even if it's a Sabbath day, you go. If you know the issue, you go. You go and teach. You go and admonish. You go and, and help that brother, that sister, out. This is a mutual responsibility. We ought to give and we also ought to receive, which is to say, now, you might think, oh, there's the pastor up there. He doesn't need to be taught or admonished. He's nigh unto God. No, I need to be taught. I need to be admonished just as much as I give it to you. We need each other. We need each other to grow in Christ. He says that there are two aspects of this. First is teaching. First is the idea of instructing. And this is, if you were to contrast teaching and admonishing, let's do it this way. Teaching is giving formative. We, we form ideas. We, we help people interpret life. It is uh, not always in the moment kind of thing. We're teaching is saying, you know, this is might happen or this is how you understand understand this idea. It, it is something that is formative or constructive, um, uh, looking forward, anticipating stuff. It's not always something we're going to deal with now. Kind of like our children always ask, when am I ever going to use this knowledge? Trust me, you need to know how to square or get the perfect square of whatever. Or you need to know the, the, the eighth element on the periodic table of, of elements. Or you need to know all the capitals of the 50 states. Why? Because you'll need it sometime. That's formative instruction. That's teaching. Are they going to use it sometime? I don't know. But formative instruction has that worldview building. It has the idea of of how do we understand life? Whereas admonition here, admonishing one another, is restorative or corrective. Uh, It is this the idea that what you just said, thought, did, or felt right there wasn't quite right. Let, let's let's address that. Let's get it corrected. This is spoken of in Second Timothy chapter three and verse sixteen. The word of God, every word of God, or all Scripture, is God breathed, and it is useful, profitable, for teaching. Yes, we need formative instruction. It is um, profitable for reproof, which is say. Boy, you're wrong in that thing. Your, your thinking is wrong. Your behavior is wrong. But it's also useful for correction. So teaching, reproof, correction. 
So now we, we see what's right. We, sh- we see how we're wrong, but how to be made right and then training in righteousness, how to persevere in this, how to grow, how to, how to be progressively sanctified in these wonderful uh, aspects of God's truth, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. This is these ideas in, in a larger context. We just see teaching and admonishing or helping one another. Teaching is a formative instruction. It is ministering the word of God, not just dispensing it, like oh, take two of these and call me in the morning kind of thing. We speak God's word to the issue, to the moment, and but even anticipating something. You may not understand this now, which is why one of the things whenever I'm providing premarital counseling, I usually spend a lot of time on forgiveness because that is so needful. That is so, And, and the, the thing is, in a, in a premarital kind of a setting, they don't think the other person can do any wrong. I mean, this is I mean, the, the, the rose-colored glasses, oh, just love and everything. Perfect husband, perfect. And it's just so delightful. Let me tell you, that is a sinner you're marrying. And they are marrying a sinner. And you will sin and be sinned against. You better be equipped. You better know the ins and outs of forgiveness. That's teaching. They expect, I would never have to, I would never have to forgive my husband, my, my fiancé. Uh, yeah. We teach, we want to apply that truth. We want to show how that they should know and then do to hear and obey God's truth. It's not just we're making stuff up. This is life. This teaches us how to live. It teaches us how to please God. So much we see in teaching in the Old Testament, New Testament as well, where we have the responsibility to teach. It's not just the teachers, you know, those who are made or appointed teachers. It is anybody. In fact, in Hebrews 5, says Hebrews 5.12, by this time, you guys ought to be teachers. You ought to be teaching one another. But you guys are so involved with these elementary things. You think that's where life is. No, let's move on from those things. Let's get into the deeper, meatier issues. Because you have come to need milk and not solid food. Can you imagine if we had bowls of, of uh, my dad always liked the blueberry buckle. I don't know if y'all, that's back when I was a kid. That's years ago. That's, that, that, that was Anyway, a long time ago. And he always, you know, it was one for me and one for you kind of a thing because it was blueberry cobbler or something. He liked it. Uh, but we don't have in our back table there, which I'm looking at and smelling, baby food. We don't have baby formula back there. We have solid meat for the mature. And we will celebrate that. So because we have been taught in these things, we can teach. We can teach others. Don't let it be done by other people in the church. If you have an opportunity to teach, then do it. Use that opportunity. Also be on guard against false teachers because, you know, it is interesting how in the church so many people are reluctant to teach. Now, we have that command, James 3 and verse 1, let not many of you become teachers because you'll incur the stricter judgment and so forth. But it's interesting how the world, so many people, and we call it now a different term, we call it an influencer. We teach, we we encourage, we, we want to shape people's perspectives and, and make them uh, respond in certain ways. It is interesting how the world is is, is not at all usually reluctant to teach and to proclaim and, and not even just to teach and proclaim, but to heartily encourage and even require certain mindset or, I mean, it's called the cancel culture nowadays where you, you, oh, you didn't believe this. You didn't trust this. You didn't toe the line on that. You're, you're done. Who are you again? You're out of here. And it's interesting how this burden to teach is so much carried by the world which is why we need to be vigilant and on guard for ourselves and for our children and our grandchildren and whoever else we have opportunity with. Watch out for false teaching. It is everywhere. Listen, let's look to God's word. Isaiah 
8 and verse 20, I think it says, they don't, you know, if they don't speak according to the, to the word, it's because they have no dawn. But we look to the law and to the testimony. That's what we spend our time with, the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. Other things we could talk about teaching. Go back to that sermon in um, on Colossians 1 and verse 28. Just a couple ideas about admonition will be done. And that is to say, admonition is putting something in the mind. It's kind of like teaching, but it has the corrective element to it. Teaching is more formative. Admonition is more corrective. And therefore, it is concerned not for me to look or be declared right. My opinion is right. But I see something that is tangibly, biblically, godly, wrong with you. It could be in your thoughts, could be in your words, could be in your affections, could be in all kinds of things. And so I am motivated not for me to be confirmed in my rightness, my right opinion, but I'm concerned for you that you are, you, you've turned aside, you're, you're, you're askew. Or it could even be in the case of a newer believer or even somebody who's been in Christ for a long time, they've never dealt with this issue. They've never come, they haven't taken the opportunity to correct and bring under the headship of Christ or bring God's word to dwell in them richly with this issue, this topic, uh, this past event or this present uh, um, uh, emotion or this pattern of thinking that they have or or that, boy, their, their words are just not good. It's the idea of putting off and putting on that we've been studying in Colossians 3. You need, there are certain things that are not right with your behavior. Let me admonish you. We think maybe negative about admonition, but it's so needful, corrective instruction. Let me help you to get right. And again, this is, it ought to have chapter and verse behind it. I can't just say, uh, you didn't, you didn't comb your hair correctly this morning. You didn't comb your hair at all. What, what kind of a person are you? God loves orderliness. Well, yes, God loves order. Does he talk about hair and that? Well, it's certainly in the old, t- and what you have to, is it God's opinion that is being violated or just you? Are your rough, your feathers being ruffled? Is it your, uh, your own opinion? What is going on here? And, and who's, Whose benefit is in your interest? Is it just about you? Is it just about, you know, we have respectable people in this congregation and you ought not to wear this? Well, okay, yes, I understand that. But what what is our motivation? What are we trying to accomplish? How are we helping one another? How are we encouraging, edifying one another? Admonition deals with sin, in other words. If we, we, we Sometimes we're more ready to admonish somebody than we are to teach somebody. Let's teach these people first. Let's go to the Word and say, this is what the Word of God says. And now we can see, sometimes all you that's all you need to do. You teach them what's right, and they want to do it. Because they're Christians. We listen to God's God's Word. We listen, uh, John 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, my sheep hear my voice. That's what, if people hear the voice, then they do what God wants us to do. Sometimes, sometimes we just need to show them. Other times, people are stubborn. Remember, a preacher says, I don't just need a two-by-four along the side of that. I need an iron pipe because I'm just so, uh, I don't I don't know sometimes. I'm, I'm blinded by my own intelligence kind of thing. When we admonish, we intend to restore the person. We, we correct them. We're trying to repair them, prepare them for something. It's used in, in some respects. There's another word related to it that talks about repairing a net or setting a broken bone. That's a different word. Um, correct, admonish, train, um, Disciple, all these different things. Katartidzo is that word, but this one is is a different word. But and the the cause or the the answer to that, whereas teaching is just filling the mind, teaching what is right. Correction, admonition means something's got to change. Teaching, we change from ignorance to knowledge, perhaps, but with admonition, correction, 
we're changing not just thoughts, but words, attitudes, actions. We need to be corrected. Admonition is required when someone needs to change their thoughts, attitudes, affections, or behavior. And it emphasizes personal responsibility. I can't do this for you. I can teach you what God's Word says, but I can't do it for you. It is the encouragement toward progressive sanctification. You know, we are just a piece of work. And we, thankfully, Ephesians 4.10, or excuse me, 2.10, says that we are his workmanship. Wow. His, 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 uh, his work, his artistry, his, his beautiful design. We are his workmanship, workmanship that Christ, or that God, prepared beforehand. Here are these works that we should walk in, and so forth. I just mistakenly quoted that verse, but you can look it up. Ephesians 2.10. In other words, we need to grow to become more like Christ. And we do that by teaching and admonishing one another. Uh, we do it with words. can just be an example to other people who've got to speak God's word to one another. And other things we could talk about this. By the way, this is very important. Remember, this is each other. It's not just somebody coming and teaching everybody. It's not just somebody coming in and admonishing. We do it with each other, which means we don't just give it, but we receive it. Oh, to receive admonition. Doesn't that just want to make the hair of your head stand on, on its on how does that go? Whatever that saying is. Or, I mean, you kind of get defensive. Or, how, what are you talking to me about that for? To receive admonition, humbly, gently, gratefully even. Somebody has taken the time not to prove themselves right, but to help you become right or better in your Christian walk. We ought not to uh, uh, be obstinate about it. We should humbly receive it. We should say, well, thank you. Uh, for for taking the time, taking the loving me in this way by admonishing me, that we should then examine ourselves, that we should uh, thank that person for taking the time to correct you. Uh, we should, as we give admonition, we should be careful against haughtiness that we say, you know, I am perfect and I've got everything in order and all this. No, we should do it in a spirit of gentleness, kindliness, humility, as we saw back in verse twelve. We should watch out for temptation. Sometimes we want to correct that person in their sin, and we think, you know, that's pretty attractive what they're doing over there. Let me get, let me explore that for a little bit. No, watch out. Be on guard for any temptation. Look to yourselves lest you to be tempted. Galatians six one says, and let's not think overly estimate our personal righteousness. In other words, Jesus in Matthew seven, people say, oh, you shouldn't, you know, judge not lest you be judged. Well, Jesus said, don't judge. Because you're going to be judged, what you should do is judge yourself first. Take care of that speck in your, or the log, excuse me, the log in your eye, so you can be able to take care of, or judge, or admonish that speck that is in your brother's eye. Let's not think too highly of ourselves. We realize I need a savior, you need a savior. We all need to grow. We all need to change. Let's do it together. Let us let that word of Christ dwell in us individually, richly, but also as a church. And if we ever start navigating away from God's word and the priority of scripture, then admonish, correct, say, hey, you know, I remember when we used to do this, and can we do that again? Can we read God's word? Can we have that prayer time? Can we uh, have that extended whatever? And so we all want to grow. We all want to change. We all want to do that until Christ comes. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the truth of your word, and we want to let that word dwell in us richly, powerfully, as a resident effect and influence, not just a transitory thing where we read our verse for the day and move on to something entirely ungodly. Please help us to always bear your word in mind and everything. Speaking, of course, your word to our own hearts and needs and, and correcting and examining ourselves against your word, 
but also to have that important role in other people's lives or each other's lives, realizing we need the scripture. We need your word. We need your revelation, your perspective, your priorities, your promises. We need to rest in those things. Please help us. We want to be faithful until you come. We pray that that would be very soon. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.